Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Development Hell Podcast with your two favorite technology people that do comedy routines late on Sunday nights. Episode number 76, Development Hell Podcast. Ed, how are you? Um, I've been eating a lot of roughage lately. And uh, I think because I haven't been balancing it out with lots of bread and ice cream, um, that it's that's kind of been a problem for me. So maybe it's like a little mini cleanse of your system you're doing. Yeah, it's pretty much every time I eat a eat a salad, I have to poop uncontrollably. But uh, the plus side, I've lost about twelve pounds. So yeah, wow, twelve pounds is a lot of time sitting on the toilet. Yeah, I know, right? Just keeps going. <laughs> lost twelve pounds in a couple hours. <laughs> Best diet ever. Yeah. <laughs> Tape, tapeworms are my friend. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, man. So uh, this time out, I know our schedule got a little messed up uh, because uh, I was uh, I traveled uh, to Australia to speak at the PHP Australia conference, and we can talk about that uh, a little bit. Um, you spoke at uh, Combine. Mm-hmm. The Combine. The Combine. And yep. I guess you have uh, Kalamazoo X coming up. Yeah, like uh... – in like five days. So yeah, so next, this, this, this upcoming weekend, yeah. How far a drive is that for you uh, from uh, oh. from Pawnee? I looked it up. It's like three and a half, four hours, so it's well, not it, too bad. Is it that close? That's not too bad, actually. Yeah, it's also right by where Elizabeth Smith lives. She lives in that area, so yeah, I probably won't stop and say hi. Um, she'll be sad to hear that. <laughs> We can't release this until after. <laughs> so she'll be like, you drove by my place. You didn't say hello. Yeah. I did. Uh, when uh, when uh, Matt Frost and I went to tech last year, we stopped by. And that's where I got that picture where I threw uh, Matt into the trunk of my BMW and took a picture of him threatening to close the lid. Yeah, I like that. That yeah, was, was a good picture. That's just that's how we do it. So, uh, so let's get into it with the sponsors. Okay, yeah. Well, we got this. We got one final ride with our friend Eric at Backup Pro. Backup Pro, which is a Sigma jigger that you use with your doohickeys to make copies of the back wickers. I don't know what that means, but it's plug-in that works with a number of CMSs. Like uh, you got your expression engine, you got your WordPress, you got your craft CMS, press the shop. Uh, stuff of that nature. I think Concrete 5. Yeah, Concrete 5. I think they're working on that one. Anyway, so what it does is you get like real simple one-click and automated backups. You can go to uh, like a file, database backup, data rest, you know, all that stuff. Backs it all up, but you can go to local storage, S3, you know, back it up to Rackspace Cloud Files. If you use that hot garbage, uh, Google Cloud Storage, Dropbox, you got your FTP, your SFTP, even if you want it emailed to you, which sounds like a terrible idea. And you can write your own storage engines uh, with it because it uses the fly system, uh, PHP libraries. Uh, so Backup Pro is super cool. And normally it's 100 bucks. The super awesome backups for you. Uh, but you use the code DEVHELL. You get uh, 50% off. 50%. That's only four nine ninety something. I don't know. I'm, I can't do the math. I think it's like half a cent. 50 bucks, basically. So you get that there, you set that up, you uh, make the client happy because they'll probably delete all their stuff. And then you also got your Rove, who, uh, of course, have been a sponsor of ours for a long time. Uh, 
Rove is primarily operated by dogs now after an agreement with the ASPCA. Uh, as you see, you log in, the uh, dog's uh, working in front of a, a multi-monitor setup. Um, but they're treated well. They uh, work eight-hour days. They have a break every two hours, uh, and they get a kibble lunch. So they're uh, well-treated, well-respected. It's a diverse background, too. you got a variety of species. Uh, well, not species, breeds. Got your, uh, got your terriers, got your retrievers. Yeah, you got uh, like uh, big dogs. You got your sheep dogs. Got your uh, German shepherds. Got your poodles. You got a standard poodle and a miniature poodle, all working there. So uh, they value diversity there. It's great. Uh, Rove, that's uh, where you get stuff taken care of uh, if you want to hire a dog to do PHP stuff for you. And then, of course, we got Wonder Network uh, across the globe on several continents. Uh, not Greenland, as far as I can tell, which is weird. I don't know what the deal is. Uh, but Iceland, yes. They will check out and make sure your website works in all these places. Not Mongolia. They don't have that yet. They do have a bunch of India, uh, I think Pakistan. No, oh, that's Bangladesh. I can't see things properly. Oh, wait, they got something in Pakistan. Yeah, uh-huh. Yep, they got it set up in Pakistan. You got your United Arab Emirates, Egypt. Uh, basically, I'm just looking at the map right now. It's a cool map. You should go try it out. Yeah, hover over it. Shows you things. Pretty fun stuff. You got your Philippines. Two in the Philippines. That is awesome. So... They can do all this like geolocated testing for you. They got a proxy service that you can use. They got a thing that'll take a bunch of screenshots for you from all over the world. Pretty awesome. Uh, you got your Wonder VPN. You got your ping statistics. Uh, measure how fast things are in different locations. It's all pretty cool. And uh, they pay for the uh, bandwidth and provide us that with that uh, on their very own servers. So for live broadcasts. So if you're listening to this right now. Go thank Wonder Network, won't you, at wondernetwork.com. Well done, Ed. Hey, thanks, buddy. So uh, so the main thing we wanted to talk about tonight was uh, some kind of the tools that Ed and I use every day at our jobs. Because there's some, uh, just looking at the list of all the things that we wrote down, there's some interesting stuff and we kind of talk about our experience with them. But before that, let's talk about conferences. So first, I'll talk a bit about when I went to Australia. So as, as people know from following me on Twitter, super long flights um, to get there. I flew 15 hours from Toronto to Hong Kong, two hour um <laughs> Sorry, it's talking something. Uh, Sorry. Uh, two hours to uh, two hour layover in Hong Kong, and then nine hours from Hong Kong to Sydney. So, so basically, I got there. Uh, I flew out on a Sunday. I lost all of Monday flying, and then uh, when I got to the hotel on early Tuesday morning, uh, they stuck me up in the executive lounge until my room was ready. So it was kind of nice, a nice room. I had a whole bunch of coffee. Uh, didn't do anything. I think I'm becoming immune to the effects of coffee, um, which is not good. And uh, then I went to bed for 18 hours, woke up on, (laughs) stayed in bed until 6 a.m. Wednesday morning. So about 18 hours, crashed out in bed, Um, did some touristy stuff. So walked, uh, the hotel was right in downtown Sydney. So it was really nice and walked through, there's a humongous park, Hyde Park that I walked through, then walked through parts of, there's a Royal Botanical Gardens there. That part of it is open to the public. 
and part of it is not. So clearly I was walking through the parts that was open. Uh, went and saw the Sydney Opera House, the humongous bridge behind it. Um, had some drinks and some lunch at a bar that's like on one of the levels of the Opera House, but it's right on the water. So it's kind of nice. I also discovered that prices of everything in Sydney are insane. Um, the Canadian dollar is like one to one, but mm. everything seems to be like 30 to 40% more expensive than it would be back home. So stuff that I was anticipating me like 10, $11, like 16, $17 when I was there. So a little bit of adjustment. They told me it's just the Australia tax. I guess they so used to importing things and, and paying, uh, paying so much for everything, whatever. So then I did my, th- uh, three and a half hour workshop on the Thursday. My, my workshop was totally sold out. So that was good. Had a good time. Told lots of amusing anecdotes, uh, about testing <laughs> stuff. <laughs> then uh, the conference itself was on the on the Friday. And one of the things that they did that I kind of didn't like was all the talks ran into each other. They didn't put breaks in. They had like a break for like morning tea, just kind of a break, then lunch, then afternoon tea. But like literally it was like one talk just was going into the next one. And he only had like 40 to, I think he had like 40 or 45 minutes. So I really had to rush through my talk, um, mm. my one hour talk to get everything done. But I had a really good time. Mm. Um, you know, I want to thank Sebastian and some of the other organizers uh, for taking really good care of me while I was there. And uh, I do know I, I spoke to, to the gentleman who organizes the PHP New Zealand conference, and he said that he wanted me to come to it next year. So if my schedule lines up, I guess I'll be getting my fat ass back onto a plane for another 20-something-plus hours to, to fly out there. So we'll see. I mean, I'm supposed to be moving uh, next year, so it might not line up, but we'll have to see. Uh, just by yourself? What? Moving you're by just, myself? You're just moving out? No, no, no. No, we're... we're just we're, we're, Yeah, no, no. We're, we're selling this place and moving someplace where things are a little bit slower and uh, life, life is a little slower and uh, things are a little bit cheaper. Do something, do something with all the equity in our ridiculously overpriced house. Sell it and then just buy something outright. No more mortgage. Uh, uh, my long-suffering wife won't have to work anymore. Things should be a little bit less stressful around here. Right, there you go. Yep. So tell, so tell me how the combine was. The combine was really cool. So it's a conference in Bloomington, Indiana, uh, which is kind of a, it's kind of like Athens, Georgia, like this hipster college town um, in, uh, in the middle of a relatively otherwise rural state. Um, and the combine is an interesting. It's it's not a technical conference. It is. Uh, I guess you'd really say it's it's um, about creativity, particular and and entrepreneurship, uh, particularly uh, you know around internet stuff. But let's see. Like the first guy I started off as a. He talked about uh, his experiences um, with making a product that's a like a loop case, looper case or something like that for your iPhone that like has a basically a finger loop so it's less likely you're, you're less likely to drop your phone cuz you put your finger through this loop i guess i don't know uh, apparently people like it. and he talked about going through this process of making that and doing a kickstarter that was pretty successful and all that stuff and things that worked and things that didn't and that was uh, pretty interesting and then um let's see i think i spoke then I can't remember. I remember I had it. So a couple things. One, um, the talks are supposed to be about 20 minutes. So it's kind of was like a TEDx thing, but less formal, hmm. you know, TEDx. It's like, they're really like, no, you got to stop at 20 minutes. Like you shut your mouth. And 
this was so, but the, the talks were short, right? And it was a single track uh, conference too. So my talks tend to do, I think, better in single tracks because it's one of those, I think, I, I suspect, I'm guessing, but I suspect that my talk is one of those that people are a little unsure of until they see it. And then if they see it, they seem to react really well. But they, you know, so it's good to force them to see it. Uh, that always seems to go over better. Anyway, so I remember I had to use the restroom. So it looked like there was like a little bit of time left. This guy's talks. He started taking questions. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to use the restroom. And then I'm walking like back from the restroom and they're like the, the MC is like announcing me. So I had to like, you know, hoof it. Um, did sort of a Harold Lloyd uh, routine. Uh, did a somersault onto the stage. Uh, that that sort of thing. So it was like Charlie Chaplin situation. I, I thought maybe you didn't know who Harold Lloyd was. So I said, Charlie Chaplin and did my thing. And that went well. Uh, I had 30 slides for 20 minutes, which is usually not a good idea. And I think I used about 30 minutes. So maybe next time I'll remember it's hard. There's like a certain number of things I want to say in my talk. And it's hard for me to like, I could drop a lot, but I, and I did, but it's still hard for me to drop some things that I really want to get across. So I probably went over that 20 minutes thing, but it seemed to go over very well. Uh, Oh, and then like after me, there was a guy who was from blizzard entertainment who uh, talked about making games and games as sort of uh, storytelling in games and things like that. And, And, you know, he was also, he had graduated from Indiana university, which is the university there in Bloomington. And, uh, but you know, that was many years ago and he, you know, he, he's come back to do this talk. And so there, there's a pretty diverse kind of, you know, background of different things, different uh, folks in different positions talking about business and creativity and entrepreneurship and uh, and then my uh, sad sack story. So that was uh, but yeah, I mean, my, my talk went real well. Uh, people seem to receive it very well. Uh, a couple of people who I know, uh, from my co-working studio came down and, and saw me speak, which was cool. They got a chance to see the talk and, uh, they were complimentary, which was very nice. And, uh, and then they, um, had, uh, some free booze like after. So I had a Moscow mule and that was good because that's my favorite drink and it all worked out. So, yeah, I thought it was really cool. Just a one day conference, single track, like eight, nine speakers, 10 speakers, maybe. And um, it was really cool. It was it was a lot of fun. Uh, I liked it. I like those kind of I like I like that kind of conference works out well, works for my talk Uh, was good times. Uh, And I only had to drive two hours as opposed to I think you took basically 24 hours to get where you're going. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. There's not that many conferences that are close enough that I can get to in in like two hours or less. Not really. I mean, just the U.S. border itself is 90 minutes away. So unless there's stuff in Buffalo, I'm gonna have to travel travel a bit to get even right. just, even just to go to Detroit. It's like three hours. So and you had to make your own conference to get people to come to you. I don't understand why there's not more stuff in Toronto. Well, yeah, that's the thing I haven't understood either. I mean, PyCon has been up here, right? Uh, I know one year there was a really interesting conference called Ruby Fringe. Um, there was a DevOps, there's a Dev, like a DevOps Day conference. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just, you'd think there would be more. I mean, if you kind of, I mean, I don't know. I really don't know what it is. I guess maybe the developers who are working in downtown Toronto just aren't the community organizing types. 
Yeah, it could be. I mean, you get a little like, I mean, obviously it's a smaller city, but in Indianapolis, there's some of that, but it's, you know, in terms of like tech community stuff, but not to the extent it could be and, and is even in similarly sized towns that have much more active sort of organizing communities uh, that I can think of, you know. Um, so it kind of, sometimes I guess it just varies on the sort of the culture that you have in that, in that city and, 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 you know, what they're kind of into and what they're not into, I guess. So, yeah. Yeah. That's just kind of the one thing I never understood that no major conferences, no major recurring conferences, some make stops here. I mean, I just, I, I, I mean, to go sideways a little bit here. I, I mean, I saw that the Kung Fu folks uh, are getting uh, Kung Fu Vancouver up and running. They did some kind right. of, they're doing some kind of crowdfunding thing um, to get that up and running. And I believe they've secured dates and a location. So whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if uh, the Kung Fu folks swoop in and do a, a Kung Fu Toronto event. One Now that we're not doing True North anymore, maybe they can do one that's kind of in the, more summer months as opposed to uh, a November one. I mean, I don't know, because the Vancouver one's supposed to be December. Uh, so I know that they do Kung Fu in Montreal is like in February. So February and then one in December. So maybe they can do one in May or June or something. I mean, I don't know. What to, and to be perfectly honest, I, I really don't care because I'm just going on and doing other things. But whatever. People ask me if I'm going to go to the one in Vancouver. I'm like, no, man, that's in... That's in December, and number one, I don't really want to go to an event run by those people, and number two, I'll be in Hawaii anyway, so I have a built-in excuse. I think, yeah, you didn't even have to say anything about those people. You could have just said, I will be in Hawaii, but yeah. I like that you, you let that apply. Well, my view on that whole organization is well-known anyway. All yes, right. I think we discussed that. So let's go on and talk about, we decided, uh, you know, when we think about topics, we tried to get a few guests on and some of that stuff um, fell through, but I'm sure we'll get it together for May. And we have, um, we have a couple of people who want to be on. They just couldn't be on tonight. Yeah. So we'll get them on that. Some very, very interesting topics. And and I think more importantly for some of these people having on topics that we haven't covered at all on the, in the course of our 75 previous episodes. So for me, it's always cool to get people on with brand new ideas and things that we haven't, haven't really discussed on the show before. So, so this time uh, after watching Ed, uh, uh, pull some plays out of my own playbook and bitch nonstop about using uh, certain technologies. I thought we would kind of go over the tools um, that we use uh, kind of day to day. So we kind of broke them down in a couple of categories. We have the languages that you and I use all the time editors. Cause of course everyone knows editors is what really matters. Some libraries and tools that we're using every day. Uh, some techniques which are kind of like non-programming things that we do all the time to help with our job. And then depending on the amount of time that we have, we're going to get into some of the things that we always wanted to get into technologies, languages, whatever, and just never got into it either never made the time to do it or we tried them and they just never kind of resonated with us. And uh, as a result, we just kind of abandoned them and stuck with what we knew. So if we talk about languages, I'll kind, of, I'll kind of start first. I mean, you and I still do some PHP. You do a lot more PHP than, mm-hmm. than I do because yeah. I basically only do PHP for side stuff. Keep open CFP running, uh, the editing and stuff that I need to do for the website for the Simulation Baseball League I've been in forever uh, and anything to do with my books, right, in the workshops. But in terms of like the professional day-to-day, um, I'm doing Python and I'm doing Python 2.7 stuff and uh, 3.4. We prefer uh, all the tools that we're working on in the 
cloud services area for testing. We're all using Python for that. Uh, I used Python before I started working with Mozilla, so I didn't find it that hard to switch to using it. And as I have noticed over time, like Python, Ruby, PHP, as much as the Python and Ruby folks hate to hear this, once you know how to use one of them, they're all kind of the same. The syntax doesn't change very much. You just have to kind of learn some of the particular language idioms. But for the most part, switching from one to the other is pretty damn easy. Yeah, I would agree with that. I don't, I, I think that they all have, I, I think it would be a lot harder to like switch to something like Clojure or F Sharp like that has sort of a fundamentally different paradigm. Yeah, functional languages, I would say. Ones that well, ones that go from like PHP, Ruby and Python relying heavily on the objects and object yeah. model to something, yeah, you're right, like Haskell or Clojure or, or or something that's, you know, really wants really wants to be functional. And even JavaScript, with a lot of JavaScript these days seems to be morphing towards uh was seemed to be going down that path to being more functional, but I've been mm-hmm. sort of been looking. It looks like whatever I guess ECMAS is it ECMAScript. So e, I yeah. guess they short form e, so ES six or e, even ES five. Looks like they're kind of introducing classes into yeah. things, which uh, I guess gives some of the some of the PHP folks a little bit of a chuckle uh, at the expense of the JavaScript people. Well, I guess yeah. I mean, I it, it's you know it's used prototypal inheritance for a long time and i i, I think that's still a thing but it's there you're sort of like i guess conceptually yeah you can define uh like a class type things more easily and i'm not an expert on it but yeah i mean they have been adding in features like that um so yeah, JavaScript does have a little bit of a different kind of approach, but syntactically is real. It's because it's C style. It's very, very similar. I think that, um, I think the hard part is probably, uh, getting your head around asynchronous execution of stuff. Like, I think that's harder. And I think that conceptually is probably a hard thing. And compare that to all the languages we're kind of talking about, PHP, Python, Ruby, uh, and then let's put in Perl there too, although Perl certainly has a lot of uh, expressiveness and sort of ways of doing things that are are different than those other languages. Um, And except maybe Ruby has a little bit of that, but um, I was looking at a, the, there's this stuff in Perl six and it's like all these operators that are like all using like Unicode characters. You don't have to, but you can. And I'm like, I don't even know how to type this. It's like the joke about using the snowman as the uh, namespace separator. Like it you actually can like, you actually kind of do stuff like that in Perl six. Um, but it also lets you do like lots of neat stuff. It's just, I don't know. They're using a bunch of the characters because it like you can write fully in Unicode and all that stuff, I guess. I don't know. I don't know much about it either. Um, I'm speaking at a, at a Perl conference like in a couple months, actually. So that should be uh, fun and also terrifying. But yeah, there's a, there's really not a massive difference between those. And, and the execution model is consistent with them in terms of like you start here, you end up here and it's a pretty straightforward path, right? And then I think the other uh, thing is that if you're using them for similar tasks, that is like, are you making web applications with them? For example, you end up discovering that a ton of stuff is the same because you, you, 
all the stuff, you know, what's HTTP and like what's a cookie and all that and all that junk. It's all the same, right? So there, there isn't dramatically different, uh, you know, uh, you know, you're, you're basically just using a different language to do the same kind of stuff. And you already know how to do that stuff in one language. So you can probably do it in the other stuff too. You just have to learn sort of the, uh, specifics of syntax and things like that there. So, yeah, you know, so you do, uh, all that stuff and, you know, day to day for me, I'm using, uh, PHP for backend stuff. And then not surprisingly JavaScript for a lot of front end stuff. And I've been writing a bit more of that again. Um, and then, but I've been trying to write CLI scripts and things like that, that we would make CLI tools with. I've been trying to do that with Python because I think Python standard libraries are way better for that. Um, the arg parse library, which is a part of the standard library, I think, as of Python 2.5. Yeah, that's, in, that's yeah. one thing I found that was kind of interesting when I was porting over some stuff that I've been working on to work with Python 3.4. I was like, oh, a bunch of stuff I used to install with pip and uh, things like that. They're now just part of the standard library, which is kind of nice. Yeah, and so like out of the box, I think Python is a better is a better language for writing CLI tools just because I think it's got stuff built in that makes it easier to deal with it. Uh, I think I end up writing less stuff to handle things like complex arguments. The whole, all the stuff is like simpler to handle uh, and the stuff out of the box in PHP, you can do that stuff, but it's the, like the argument parsing stuff for PHP is it's very, very basic. Um, and uses like weird uh, single character codes sort of for like what the argument types are and things like that. And then there's libraries that you can get that, you know, make it easier to deal with that stuff, but that's installing a library with composer or things like that. So that means that that library has to be on the, you know, the box that the tool is running on and, you know, it gets, it gets hard, but, and I think that Python sort of, I just, I find Python better for this stuff. Um, for, for those kinds of things. Uh, I, I prefer it for that. Um, and I also find that my inexperience with Python, because I'm not intimately familiar with it, uh, or really, really comfortable with it. It's not as big a deal when you're writing sort of one-off CLI scripts, you know, the, 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 the sort of process flow and things like that doesn't get very complex, you know? Um, so you know how to write a function and you know how to parse arguments, then you can write a CLI tool in Python. You don't get into like, what's the object model like? And how do you do this? And how you, it's pretty simple stuff. So, uh, so I, I find that, that I, I like using Python for that kind of stuff. And, uh, it, it it makes things a little bit a little bit easier on me. So my day job stuff has been doing a lot of that. Yep. Cool. I, I, also, you had to do a tiny bit of Java, as I remember as well. Just but that's kind yeah. of because Neo because Neo four J being a Java app, probably there's some pretty interesting tools for that. Yeah, if you want to write, ex, you can write extensions in in for Neo four J to add functionality to it. Um. But not surprisingly, the app is a, you know, it, it's written in Java. Um, although, well, some parts of it aren't necessarily written in Java, but it's all a JVM application. It executes in the JVM. And 
So you need to write those extensions in some JVM language. And Java was the one that had the best documentation for things we were doing. And uh, it, I don't think Java as a language itself is particularly poor. I think it, it's as good as PHP, <laughs> right? Um, I think that the, I think the issue I have with it is that all the tools around it, I think, and the sort of co- way the community works around it is, I would, I would describe it as actively hostile to the beginner. Uh, so I, I do find that challenging and, uh, I, and my experiences were not particularly pleasant, but I, it really wasn't because of the language. I think it was really because of the tools are kind of like just very complex and there is not a lot of good, uh, here's how to do this from no, from zero to doing something productive kind of information for those things. My cat is staring at me like kind of weirdly <laughs> making me uncomfortable. Well, cause he's, he doesn't, your cat doesn't like that. You're, you're shit talking Java. Yeah, I know it's, it actually has been a Java developer for a long time. Uh, I used to work in the banking industry. All right. So that's lame. So, you know, kind of very typical. So let's, <laughs> let's go into the one that causes uh, almost as many, uh, as many arguments about editors that we use. So as most people know, uh, I'm a longtime Vim user. Uh, but these days I'm actually dabbling a lot with Adam and I've, I've been using Adam as my day-to-day editor for maybe about two months now. Um, I've been liking it, uh, quite responsive. I kind of, one of the things about Vim, well, it's, it's both a strength and its weakness is its configurability, right? So it really isn't a lie to say that if you look at someone else's editor, whatever one they're using, chances are you can create a reasonable facsimile of it, of that environment using plugins, mm-hmm. right? You can get the uh, file browsing and auto completion and a whole bunch of stuff in there. Um, but there are always some things about Vim, like Vim's uh, auto completion can sometimes be kind of wonky. And um, then on top of it, stuff like uh, something as simple as like handling indenting properly Mm-hmm. seem to be like some Vim plugins handled it really well and some didn't. And I've just found when I've been using Atom for the uses that I have, which are in order Python most of the time, Markdown, the vast majority after that, and some PHP, uh, and then just regular text. Uh, for those four cases, Atom has been, I, I would say, been pretty much perfect. Its Vim bindings are actually quite good, so I feel at home navigating around inside. I miss a few things, mostly because the thing that Vim is so good at being modal and stuff and all keyboard-driven is that the muscle memory on how to like highlight large portions of text and transform them and stuff, I, I, that stuff just isn't quite there in Atom. So there's some plugins that I used all the time. There was a, there was a plugin for Vim called Surround, dot vim that made it really easy to highlight text and like either switch out to you if it was in single quotes you could change it to double quotes you could change it to put brackets around it uh any sort of parentheses anything like that so it was very very handy um for that um adam not so much so i kind of fumble a bit trying to figure out how to do that sort of stuff but with but with decent bindings where i can you know use the hjkl method of navigating uh, forwards and backwards a screen. It's the same key binding. So I was able to get up and be productive with Adam pretty quickly. Cool. Yeah. Um, I uh, have my, my primary editor for 
doing PHP stuff is PHP Storm. And I used to, and, and, and I still use it a lot. I used to use Sublime Text uh, a ton. And I still do use it for a lot of text repetitive tasks or things that I have to move, you know, do a bunch of stuff kind of quickly in it because sublime text is really, really fast. And I haven't compared it to Adam. I haven't compared it to say Microsoft's code, uh, app, um, which is, I think does no, I don't, I don't know. It's sort of like Adam, but it has like, uh, Microsoft IntelliSense junk in it too. Um, well, so I use Sublime Text and it's really fast to do stuff. And that is nice because it just, it, I never feel any lag. It never feels sluggish. It's very, very responsive. And I love that about a text editor. It just means I can do things really quickly. The reason why I started using PHP Storm was I started working at a job that had a gigantic code base. And when I used PHP Storm, it was just so much faster to, to navigate around that code base and to figure out, like, where I need to go to make this change or to close or fix this bug or things like that. Um, and that just has to do with they just have really, really good code insight tools and ability to be like, OK, just command click on this class name. And it'll show you all the usages of that class name or like, you know, or the definition of it or, and you can just jump right to it, like right away. And it is just a lot faster. It is faster than having to grep for stuff. It, and you can still do those things. Uh, but it's, it's just, there's a lot of like code insight in, built into it. That's really, really powerful. And so what I find is that, for a lot of tasks like that, it's just very, very handy. Um, and it gets me, it lets me find things more quickly when I'm trying to solve a problem and navigate around a code base faster. And that stuff has just been really, really powerful for me. Um, so I think it's totally worth the money. Uh, it's totally worth having around. Um, also it just has a really good step debugger in it and it's, it, they do some stuff to make it easier to do step debugging in PHP than it can be for some IDEs. Um, I mean, otherwise I have tended, I, I'm not, I was never like a heavy IDE guy. I didn't, I don't really like that stuff, but boy, they just, it just really does help. There's a number of things that it does that it just makes my life it lets me do stuff faster and that's really nice so that's why tools are supposed to exist right um to make things easier and faster so i you know i switch out between that and sublime text for different kinds of things um like if i have a big text document um that i need to make changes like i say a bunch of changes to i will open that in sublime text or if i'm going to write markdown I uh, I write that in Sublime Text, but then I use an app called Marked. I make a M A R K E D that sort of like watches a file and then shows you a preview of like what it's going to look like, and there's a bunch of other Markdown related stuff. Um, and so it changes in real time. Uh, and then actually, probably the other thing is that the the uh, great shame uh, that I hold still to this day is that I use if I'm in a if I'm in a shell, uh, I use Nano like on uh, on a, on in a Unix command prompt. Um, 
And that really goes back to me using Pico uh, when I first got on the internet. Uh, well, not first, um, but I started using Pine, um, the email client. Um, I used to use, um, was it? I used to use Elm to read my email in college. And then they got Pine and uh, they were like, oh, Pine's cooler. You should try that. And Pine was cooler. And I used, uh, and Pico was the editor, but Pico has some licensing things. So Nano is like, it's a Pico clone, uh, that is more free, I guess. Maybe it's GPL. I can't remember what the deal is. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So Nano actually is a copy of Pico, uh, but it does not have the, which it uses a different licensing thing that, so that's why it was a, it, they, that's why Nano was created. Because Pico had some licensed stuff in it that uh, that was not completely free, I guess in the in the free as in freedom uh, kind of thing. So I'm not going to say that Nano is a powerful editor <laughs> by any stretch, um, but I still use it and I can do most stuff in it pretty okay. And I think there's a lot of people who do use it and they just don't admit it. Um, but, uh, I'm not going to use Emacs cause that seems like overkill. I have a friend who does use Emacs and will yell at me for that. Um, and I find, um, VI and Vim, like I can kind of get around it because at least I know enough to like how to change modes and move, but I just always end up making mistakes in it. And it's, and it's, it's something that until you know how to use it, um, you, Basically, or it's kind of, I don't know, it's like having a lightsaber and until you know how to use it, you just keep cutting your fingers off. Um, so you have to go through like a month of chopping off appendages until you get used to it. And I have never found that time where I was like, I'm going to take all this time to, you know, get used to it. And it's not that I don't think it's valuable or a good idea or whatever, just you know, I don't know, my CTO, Jeremy Kettle, he uses Vim for most stuff. Uh, and then I, every once in a while, I show him something in PHP Storm, and he's like, oh, wow, that's awesome. I'm like, suck it. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, so I just kind of got, I, I, I never picked up Vim and don't really have enough motivation to use it. And I'm sure it's great. A lot of people I know use it. That's awesome. But I am perfectly fine with Nano. That is good for me and it is installed most of the time on most of the boxes I flip into. So it just ends up not being an issue, you know, so I can use it. That's fine. But if I'm going to do, if I want to do editing, I really, most of the time it's a last resort to edit it directly on the server. Uh, I try yeah. to avoid it if I can. Definitely. Uh, yeah. So, so no, I'm happy with it. I, I think the thing is, is that um, I think it's good to try some different stuff and, you know, I've like the thing with switching to PHP Storm was a big deal for me because it was it's a big, heavy tool. And normally I don't like it, but they it, they do a really good job with it. And even with Python stuff, I use I will uh, I have a paid up active license of PyCharm um, specifically because there's been some times where I had to write more complex Python stuff or had to work with more complex Python stuff. And it, the code insight helped a lot there too, because I was able to figure out stuff faster than I would have normally. 
And uh, so it came in handy on some stuff we were doing for um, some Ansible modules we were writing, which Ansible, the DevOps uh, tool, the provisioning tool, that's all written in Python. So um, when I was doing that kind of work, uh, it was helpful to bring that up and, and to have that. So I don't mind spending some money if the tools are to, tools are good and useful and provide it. But I sort of like having I don't try to do stuff that I don't think it's good at, you know, don't try to like, I'm going to edit all my markdown and I'm going to open up an ID for that. That seems ridiculous. You know, it's not, I don't need that. It's not necessary. Yeah. I played a tiny bit with uh PyCharm. It seemed okay. I mean, I may, again, I may go back and, and give it a try, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, like uh, in that wonderful little book that Cal Evans did, the wisdom of the elephant, the little thing that you didn't get invited to participate in. Right. So the little section I did was basically uh, surrounding the concept about, Pick a good subset of tools, so some languages, some uh, an editor, a few support tools, and really, really learn how to use them mm-hmm. uh, because that will help you be way more productive because the, when you know these tools really well, then when an opportunity comes up, you already have the requisite skills in place to like quickly get something done. It's like... It could be like learn JavaScript, learn uh, a server-side language, learn an editor really well, and then learn some deployment tools, learn like Puppet or, um, I don't know, you can learn Ansible. Just like learn like learn like four things, learn them really solid, and then you'd be really surprised uh, kind of the opportunities you get to use those things, you know? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, big time. Big time. So, yeah, definitely. Do I get to go first on the next one? Yeah, yeah you, you can for the next. So the next section we wanted to go talk about was kind of um, libraries and tools that we find ourselves uh, using every single day. So why don't you go first? Gosh, every single day. I don't know if that, that and you said every single day, and I don't know if I do that. Um, uh, don't be a drama queen. <laughs> um, well, there's just some things that I end up using a lot. Um, I think one thing that a lot of people uh, – a lot of people, and, and oftentimes I end up using curl for checking HTTP stuff, uh, like APIs or just making a quick request and stuff. And I use it because it's there and it's installed. Um, but there's a tool called HTTPI, uh, HTTPIE. And it's basically, it's a command line tool that it's not a drop in replacement for, for curl, but it basically does the same kinds of things curl would do except it is a, it, it does some things that are nicer for the kinds of things people are doing in uh, with HTTP now, like it will auto create um, the way that you pass arguments is a little bit less verbose. And by just setting, you know, sort of like the assignment operators by changing those assignment operators, it will like format them as, form fields or as query string or as JSON that you pass um, it. Uh, so basically it's like you end up writing less stuff and you can do more with it. And it's really a better tool than, than I think curl is for this stuff. But uh, sometimes it's hard to, to sort of break out a habit of using things that you're used to. Uh, but I would say, you know, HTTP is a good choice for people to try. If you do much HTTP stuff, it's a really nice tool. Um, and, uh, sort of is, is a nice clean interface to doing testing on the command line. Um, and it just does a really good job. Makes things look pretty, just does better stuff. And I like that. 
I like it looks nicer and it's easier to kind of read and easier to work with, I think. Um, another one that I've been using a lot lately, and if people watch stuff I've done on Twitter, is that for front-end stuff, um, you know, I didn't really buy into any of these larger frameworks like Ember or React or things of that nature. I haven't done that. And part of that is because I just haven't had to build anything like, you know, like that kind of lately. But then some stuff came up where I had to, I was going to build a tool. Uh, it was actually the pricing tool for graph story, like the thing that you go to and you have like sliders and junk and pick from drop downs and it tells you how much things are going to cost. Right. So it's this pricing tool that says, Hey, it's going to cost you this. Give us the money. Um, and uh, so that was the kind of thing where I was like, well, I, this is kind of a complex thing. And I, I'd been looking at something called Vue.js. That's V-U-E-J-S. And that's a uh, relatively new um, framework that is a bit like Angular. Um, and I certainly have my other thoughts. I have used a little uh, Angular 1 a little bit, and I have... I've sort of been a little disappointed about where they initially were going to be going with Angular 2, and that's the reason why I kind of didn't go down that road either. I really like Vue.js, and I think the reason I like it a lot is it gives you, out of the box, it gives you a lot of the um, that re- that binding of between uh, your data, and you might call it your model, and it's basically, you know, just properties you have and sort of a a thing called data on this uh, object you have in JavaScript, these properties that you have on there so that when you set things uh, in the, in that data hash, it automatically updates the UI to show, to reflect that. And so you bind properties in that data thing to, to the UI and it, it does things like hides things or shows things or changes the value or all that junk. Right. Um, And then it, so it two-way binds it so that when somebody makes a change with the UI that changes that value, then that value gets updated inside the data uh, structure. So that sounds like other stuff you've worked with. Okay, yeah, what's the big deal? Well, the thing that I like about it is that I could use view and it I got the stuff that it did in terms of like um, having... Uh, being able to use it uh, without having to adopt like a whole new system for how I was going to build like my pages. I could just use Vue on like a single piece of a page and I didn't have to buy into a bunch of stuff that I didn't really want to do, like completely change how I was going to do things. Like I didn't have to, you know, start writing stuff in CoffeeScript and then have some tool that like, you know, changes it into JavaScript and you don't, I didn't have to change my whole workflow, all this processing and stuff like that. I didn't have to buy into all that stuff. I could just use Vue for one thing and include it in the page and create the object and use and say, okay, attach to this piece of HTML and then worry about just that piece of HTML and all the stuff underneath it. And it just handles that and handles it nicely. And so I really liked that because I was able to sort of like progressively adopt it, I guess I'd say so that you could, I could just use it on a, on a, like a, for one thing or a couple things. And I didn't have to completely change the way that I do front end stuff. 
I could just use it where I wanted to and then not use it for anything else. And that was totally fine. And um, so often I find with uh, a lot of these uh, front end uh, frameworks uh, like Angular, or like React or Ember, you basically it's like you have to completely change how you generate pages and like how you structure everything and stuff. And this didn't make me do that. And that really appealed to me. Uh, so you can go down that road with Vue. And I've kind of been messing with that stuff a little bit. And actually, I ran into there. I ran. I started using and I've been using this tool called Webpack some. Um, and I, it's hard to explain, probably because I don't understand it well enough. But Webpack like is a tool like like actually like a, a lot of things that I'm seeing in JavaScript, like there's it does a whole bunch of stuff. And sometimes it's hard to figure out, like as somebody who doesn't know what the stuff is that you want it to do, it's confusing about how you would use it or what you use it for. But I guess shit, I'm just gonna go have to go look it up. But I I think what you get into is that a lot of people use Webpack. Um, for taking, um, stuff in the, it's for the browser to take, um, code that they might write in, uh, in JavaScript or other languages that aren't supported in the browser, like new JavaScript features or JavaScripts or, or say stuff that compiles down to JavaScript. Um, and they can use a tool like Webpack to do the translations and also to like bundle up all the modules of code that you have and turn it into one thing that then you can just uh, include that single file in your um, in your web pages. And then you have access to all that stuff. Um, it's an it's it's an interesting tool and there's it's super, super powerful, but it's also really, really complex. And like it can convert all different because if people who aren't familiar with doing more JavaScript stuff, there's like there's no. Well, I guess in ECMAScript six, there's a, finally they have a way to programmatically import stuff like import another module of code. But that isn't something that's existed until now. Like you always had to just like load the library with, you know, HTML, right? Like node actually had to invent its own way of doing that called, well, I guess it was called common JS, but there's like three or four different module systems that are popular inside of JavaScript that be all got created because there was no one true standard. Um, and so this can convert a number of webpack can convert different module systems and it can do things like, load up different file types and then you get these things called loaders that can process them. Like it can process coffee script with a loader uh, and convert it into a JavaScript module, or you can require things like templates that are in different languages. Like if you get a loader for Jade templates or for handlebars templates, it will take those things and convert them for you. Uh, and, um, and then there's loaders for things like image files too. Like it'll somehow combine or inline your image files and stuff like that. So like 
you can, and, and some of the stuff it's like, I'm not sure why you want to do that, but I, maybe there's a way to do that, but I just don't understand why you want to in your JavaScript file, write require. And then the name of an image instead, because I, to me, that's like, wouldn't you do that in HTML or at least in CSS? Why are you doing that in JavaScript? JavaScript doesn't care about that. I don't know why I don't understand it. Apparently there's a reason you want to do it, but I don't understand what it is. Um, I think the thing that gets tough with it is that you have like there's the thing that I touch on is that in Vue.js, what a lot of people do is they write these dot VUE files and these files contain both an HTML template that has special Vue.js markup in it. So you have like, you put in like special attributes that are not valid HTML, but Vue understands them and does stuff on does transformations on the DOM based on it, which is a lot the, like a lot of the way Angular does it. And then it also has a style sheet section in it. And then it also has a script section that you write JavaScript in. So this one file has like a template and styles and code in one thing. And there's some appeal to that in that you can write your component and everything's in that one file, Right. And that is appealing. And then you could write multiple components that reference components here and there. And the idea is that you could say, just do requires at the top of your file, say, I need this component and this component and this component. And then here's, and then build your stuff just based on that. And you can use the module system and you can include things like .vue files and it will throw all your stuff together and you know, you sort of have these self-contained components and you can just do requires on them and it all works nicely. So that works great if you can figure out all this, the like hoops you have to jump through and the alchemic, is that the, would that be the right, the alchemic um, like uh, transformations you have to do and the secret language you have to write everything in to make it work correctly. Um, because what I ended up doing was like, I'm writing all the shit and I don't really completely understand why it works, but it's just like, well, if I do it this way, it seems to work. Um, and I jump through these hoops and I do these backflips and then it somehow magically turns my stuff into something that works. Uh, and I, I, it, it, it's great when it works, but I also don't really understand why it works. And that kind of worries me a little bit. And then the second thing you get into is that, with the browser not really not natively supporting this modularization stuff, you have these all these converters that sort of have to like take the modules and shove them all together and transmogrify everything. That's a technical term. And and like make you know, it makes this blob of JS that contains like everything. And you load that, but then if you have like other JavaScript that you load in a different way, like JavaScript that just exists on a single page, right? Well, those things don't really know how to talk to each other because of all the scoping issues and things like that. Those modules usually self-contain everything so that you can't, they're not all like in this global scope that you can grab stuff out of when you load up other code that also runs inside the JavaScript environment. So getting those things to talk to each other or exchanging data or stuff like that is really hard. And it's because as I, as far as I can understand, it's hard because the browser isn't really designed to do this stuff yet. So it works great if you write everything through this system. But if you're like me, where you're kind of like, well, I sort of like still building my pages where most of the stuff server side renders and 
there's a lot of appeal to that. And I like just, you know, separating out the, I, you know, pages kind of separate out and they're each kind of self-contained things. Um, then it's hard to combine those kinds of things with these ideas that you want to, that, you know, this modularization that you want to do with something like Webpack or another tool like that. And it gets really, really hard. And that's like a whole thing in JavaScript just itself, where I said, like, if, if we, if you did PHP, the way that the PHP sort of ecosystem is now, if it was like the JavaScript ecosystem, you would have like five different ways of doing auto loading that were incompatible with one another. And people would be writing tools to do these translations to like, to, 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 you know, okay, your way of auto loading, which is completely different from this way of auto loading, let's make it compatible. So it all, com- you know, combines down and compiles down into something that all works. And there would be like five different package managers, right? And it's really, really hard for, you know, I, I wouldn't consider myself a super JavaScript expert. So sometimes I go into this stuff and I'm kind of like, well, maybe I should, could be doing something different. And that's how I should be doing stuff. Cause I'm reading some article where this like, well, this is the way you should do things now. And this is a much better reason. And there's lots of people who do this stuff, do it, use these tools. And I'm like, oh shit, well, maybe I'm not using the right tools. Maybe I'm doing, using it a dumb way. And I start doubting myself because I'm like, I have something less confident about it. And so you're kind of like, well, I've been doing it this way, but then all these people are doing it this way. And maybe I should be doing it the way they're saying. And so like the past two, like, like couple days, I guess Friday and Saturday, I wasted like a total of like five hours trying to figure out how to do shit with Webpack and things like that. And both times after a couple hours, I was like, get uh reset hard head done. I, I like destroyed everything I did. Because I got to a point where it was like I had it was like I was making a Rube Goldberg device of like how to make all these things work together. And it just didn't work the way I wanted to. And it was just like a fucking rabbit hole of shit. And I guess at the end of the day, what I'm saying is that I really wish like they would focus more on making stuff that's like simpler for people. (laughs) And I think it has to do with JavaScript kind of being sort of still not a, a super mature uh, ecosystem for building stuff in. But man, some of this stuff is so complex. And there is a lot of pressure as a developer when you're working on this stuff to like feel like you're I, I've never felt that fear of missing out like in a decade as badly as I have, like in current JavaScript development, like modern JavaScript development. There is so much stuff that makes you question if you're doing things the right way. And it, boy, it sucks. And, and I, Jesus Christ, what's going on? These cats are going crazy. It's just really, really tough to deal with all that stuff. And like, you like have to have a mantra that you're like doing things a simple way and the right way to do it. That's, that's the right way to do it. And don't listen to people who tell you you're an idiot. And it, boy, it's, it's just tough, man. It's just tough. Real tough. That's, that's yeah. That's uh, your points about the JavaScript, JavaScript stuff. It seems very apt. I mean, I do. I'm an outsider looking in because I really don't do any JavaScript stuff. But you're right. It just always seems this. Uh, you're you're right. It'd be like everyone has their own way. I'm not sure. Like it's almost like all these ideas have to get fleshed out, and then eventually someone will someone will come up with the right uh, tool, and then everyone will rally around that tool. But you could also say that given that 
uh, ECMAScript is pushing forward really fast, adding new things. I mean, it could be another four, five, six years of all this churn. Like if you look at stuff like on the PHP side of things, I think one of the benefits seems to be that there are a few core tools that everyone has kind of agreed upon. Yep. And tools and techniques that the 99% of the people that use PHP have agreed upon. I think they've all agreed upon uh, that we're going to focus on um, Composer for package management. Uh, we're using auto-loading. And uh, those are that's really it. I mean, and, 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 most, and also, I mean, people are still using frameworks, but it's interesting that now Composer allows people a lot more freedom to pull in packages to, to do things that they want to do. But, but yeah, I mean, could, yeah, could you imagine there's like uh, five different ways of doing auto loading and then people are spending all this effort on creating shims to get the two different, well, if you're using this project, then here's a, here's a, here's a, uh, you know, a little tool so that your auto loading from project X works with project Y. That's, that would be kind of a nightmare. And, and also uh, I, I don't see so much outright hostility from the tool makers in the mm-hmm. PHP side of things that I still see on display um, in the JavaScript side of things where you pointed a few things where mm-hmm. somebody writes some tool for doing the um, asset managing, right? Yeah. They're like, they're like, oh, they're like basically, well, my tool's awesome and gulp sucks. Like that type of, I mean, the, I mean, it could be also a product ad that you and I are getting older and have less and less patience for that sort of thing. But it's like, yeah, that kind of edginess where you're like picking on other tools. It's, it does it. It's not really doing what you think that it's uh, it's doing. It's almost like all you're doing is attracting people who kind of think like you do and react like you do to the same stimulus, and you end up with a really weird kind of monoculture. And then I, mm-hmm. I, my personal experience has been looking at tools where the creators of it are like really aggressive at like insulting and demeaning other similar tools. Those, the tools run by the insulters tend to, they kind of peak really early and then kind of slowly fade away as people get tired of trying to deal with super aggressive people who promote their, their particular solution above everything else and, and just go out of their way to denigrate any potential options. I mean, some tools are good some tools are bad, but I don't really have a, really have a ton of use for people or tools where they just proclaim their vast superiority over everything. Like if you're like, if you're thinking this, if, if in your documentation for your project, if you point at some other projects that that project sucks, that really kind of colors how I personally feel about the person that's running it. Yeah. It seems real Bush league and, you know, and you know, I, I said it on Twitter, so it's not like it's a secret. I kind of called out, it was, it's this tool called brunch, which, so, you know, I was reading about it and said that it was a simpler kind of tool, similar to maybe the gulp, but it was more straightforward and simpler. And I was like, that appeals to me. That it sounds exactly like I would wish I need more simplicity in my uh, JavaScript workflows. And but then, I'm, you know, and I'm just reading I'm just reading the documentation about, you know, an introduction to it. And it's like it's like an essay on why my shit's fucking awesome and why the tools that are really popular suck dick. And I'm just like, oh, there's anything wrong with suck dick, but the, it was just really, really like, it seemed super tacky. And like, why do you, why do you feel the need to be like that, man? And it really like makes me now not want to use the tool because <laughs> I'm kind of like, Ugh. like all I'm going to think about is this, this just seems douchey and it just makes me feel douchey about it. Now, now I got douchey emotions associated with your tool and uh, that's not cool, man. And it makes me not want to use it. <laughs> so 
that's a bummer. Like, I just wish it was like, just be a pro and like say, Hey, we think our tool's faster. Maybe here's some evidence. Like here's some, you know, I don't know, benchmarks, whatever, but at least here's some evidence. Do X, do Y, do similar things in the same tools. And it, it's pretty fast. So just state your fucking case, man, you know, uh, and otherwise it sounds like you're just, I guess you're bummed out and afraid or maybe, you know, resent or are scared of the other tools. And, you know, that's kind of the vibe it came from and or that I got from it. And I was just like, yeah, maybe not. Cause, cause I feel like I see that and I'm kind of like, well, how helpful is this person going to be if I like just want to talk to them about stuff? Like, are they going to be all like dickheaded about, uh, you know, if I have to just ask a question about like using their thing with some kind of framework and maybe it's not the framework they like. So they're just going to give me shit about it instead of answering my question. You know, I don't have time for that shit. So, you know, stuff like that just it's kind of like, I, I don't know. It just makes me not want to use it. And that was a bummer that when I read that about the stuff about brunch, I was like, I don't know, maybe it sounds cool because I was checking out some of these other tools. And then I'm like, well, no, that's kind of disappointing and makes me not want to participate in this. Uh, it, it sort of like joined that ecosystem. I don't, that doesn't, that, that, that doesn't bode well for the vibe of the ecosystem when the, the leaders of it, uh, have that kind of an attitude. And it was a bummer. I, mean, I don't know. Maybe he's just pissed off and had a bad day or something, but I don't know. I probably would have taken that down if that was the case. So yeah, that's it. I don't know. Um, I'm right now what I'm using is I'm using gulp, uh, to do stuff. And I figured out how to do the things I want to do, but I'm just doing stuff like, okay, converting like SAS or less into CSS, doing some, you know, copying some files around and preparing them for deployment, things of that nature. But I'm not doing anything fancy where I'm like, Oh, I'm going to do a bunch of like modularization of shit and stuff. Nah, I'm not not doing going down that road where I'm sort of like doing big transformations on my code base and stuff like that, because I think it's just doesn't work out too well. Uh, I think it, I think it gets overly complex when you, all the, the sort of like bending over backwards you have to do to try to make the browser do stuff that it doesn't support natively. And it just didn't, you know, I, I don't know. It just, it gets to a point where I think it's too complex. And my experience has always been that complex systems tend to break all the time. So, yeah. And that's pretty much what's going on. All right. I'm just looking at the time. I think, I don't think we're going to get to the rest of the stuff we want to do. We are going to get to it. No, man. We're going to get to it. We've already been talking for an hour. So we're talking about stuff that I've been using, libraries and tools. So for all the testing stuff I've been doing, I've been using PyTest. And I have been really, really surprised at how flexible and powerful PyTest is. Is that the one that's built into the standard library? No, it's a third-party one. Oh, okay. I think I've used something like – I've used a different test runner. I can't remember what yeah, it there's is. Yeah, there's a couple different ones. PyTest is kind of the one that most of the Mozilla folks who are doing Python stuff have been using. And mm-hmm. it also helps that uh, we have a developer who uh, I think is one of the core PyTest developers. I think um, – working on the same team as me. So it's very easy to like hit him up and ask him questions. And he's, he's uh, been very uh, generous with his time. He's also a a gentleman who's over in England. So we have a tiny bit of overlap in the mornings Mm -hmm. with our, like in my morning time with him. Um, And so it's been really good. He's shown me some like PyTest does some interesting things with, um, with data fixtures. Uh, 
it has some cool like conventions out of the box where you can have a, a file with a specific name, kind of like the bootstrap.xml file that yeah. PHP unit wants to use. But even more extensible, it's Python code. I was able to – I was creating some – tools because the vast majority of my work is whenever one of the i'm currently a qa for five or six different projects um i'm the lead for at least four of them a lead qa person so most of my work is whenever they do a deployment they'll deploy it to either staging or into production and then i run a bunch of tests black box ones basically mm-hmm. verify the functionality is working and then most of these projects have endpoints built into them where we can do health checks and status of like what's configured on that server and things like that so very very thoughtful stuff being done by the developers so i'm doing a lot of these contract uh, style API tests where I'm doing API calls and I'm not so much concerned with the actual results that I'm getting back, but I'm looking for specific fields to mm-hmm. be present and specific types of values to be in the responses. But with PyTest, I've been able to do some really interesting things of even, uh, you know, you talked about doing command line stuff with Python. With um, with PyTest, I can even create my own set of like command line switches and pass information into the Python tests via the command line, which is kind of something I've never really fooled around with much with PHP. And I can, I, you know, set up some environment, like set up some switches so I could tell it what environment we're running tests in because I'm using configuration files for some expected values, kind of like fixture files. And I can tell it for this test run, use the staging fixture file. For this other test run, use the um, uh, production configuration file right? mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so it's been kind of cool just as the more i work with it the more i look at the power of it the, the really interesting thing that i like is that PyTest doesn't it doesn't force you to um to write your tests in quite the same way that php unit does where in php unit they're objects and then your tests are methods um inside that object and you use annotations and things like that. PyTest is a lot more flexible. You can have standalone test functions that aren't part of a class. You can do them as classes. They have annotations so we can tell it, use these values uh, that we set in the configuration configuration file so I can tell it, oh yeah, I'm going to need the uh, what environment that we're in and uh, so that it can then read and pass configuration objects in and do all this really like neat stuff with fixtures and other stuff that just just aren't there in PHP unit. Cause I guess, you know, Sebastian never thought of them or nobody else who uses it has thought of it. So it's, it's been very refreshing to use it. And just like with, uh, with PHP unit, there's all sorts of other configurable options, different alternate test runners. I found out how to force, um, PyTest tests to do output. Cause normally just like in PHP unit, It'll, it'll usually only prints things out if there's a, a failure. Right. If the test passes, it won't bother um, doing any of the output. But I found I can pass a switch in so I can do things like uh, write my my little deployment test and get it to, to spit out some things to tell it what it's checking because the ultimate goal is to get it so that, you know, Mozilla does everything with Bugzilla, the bug tracking system. So, you know, when we do a deployment, we actually have a ticket for that deployment. Mm. So uh, one of my coworkers wrote a tool that will allow me to like uh, send output from a test run and put it right into a ticket. 
Mm-hmm. I oh, just pass, nice. it the, pass it the ticket number. So I'm slowly trying to build up the tool so that when they run, they generate all the output that I need them to. And it will just literally take that output and dump it into the ticket. So I don't, because these days I'll run the test and then I have to cut and paste and put things in the ticket and, and add a little bit more information. But the whole idea is kind of create some templates and then get the test to fill those values in and then automatically post it um, to the ticket, which would be super, super helpful. So, um, uh, you know, in many ways uh, I find when I'm speaking with my coworkers, they don't have the kind of same level of unit testing and from the programming side of things like I did. Most of them are somewhat programmers and they got into the QA side of things along the way. Very few of them are hardcore uh, like developers for as long as I had been doing it. Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of interesting to do a back and forth with them about showing, oh yeah, programmatically, like I showed them my tests, I wrote all this stuff and did all these things. Like, oh wow, they never thought of doing it. And they're like, oh, we didn't realize that, you know, uh, you know, they're like, one of those like, oh, I guess, I guess you were a programmer before all this. I'm like, yes, I'm pretty sure I learned how to do all these things beforehand. So all my experience with the PHP unit stuff has been totally applicable to using PyTest because it's that same sort of end unit style where the basis of the tests are small methods, mm. some setup stuff, and then assertions. It's very, very portable. Nice. Uh, and the Python folks, they're they're not so big on the uh, uh, test doubles either. So PHP stands alone out there amongst the scripting languages where most of the devs love to do their um, test doubles. Python folks are perfectly okay with um, using real things or doing monkey patching because I haven't seen – I mean, I don't have to do any tests like that, but I, I have seen that for some of the, the unit tests for some of the projects themselves – uh, I see a mix of some folks going the integration test route and then some other folks actually uh, going through with the test double. So kind of a you know a little bit of each. So it's kind of nice. Yeah, I wonder how much of that comes from, you know, Python, for example, is not nearly as married to it, you know, making everything an object. Mm-hmm. Though, because you have a module system that lets you do a lot of stuff that you in PHP, you, you pretty much have to do as an object. Um, and I, I wonder if a lot of that comes from sort of the, those, uh, those philosophies coming, having a very Java esque, um, object model in PHP and kind of going along with that. I'm just speculating. I really don't know, but I wonder if no, that's No, I think that, I think that's fair. PHP is definitely solidified around the object models, the way things are going to be going forward. So. Yeah. And there's no monkey patching period. End of story. You can't do that. I mean, unless you installed extension. So no, actually you, no, no, no. You can do stuff without the extension. There's a, there's a library. Yeah. There's a library called Kalan that I, I I added a chapter to my, to my uh, new testing book about how to use it and doing some of the monkey patching stuff, just to show people you can do it if you want and kind of highlighting, it was Mm -hmm. kind of interesting when I did all the, the, the research for that chapter and learned how to use the tool how comfortable the monkey patching felt because a bunch of the setup stuff was very, very similar to what you'd be doing if you're doing test doubles anyway, because you still need to create that substitute thing that you're using for monkey patching purposes. Mm-hmm. So you're just basically using the tool to, as a wraparound and saying, okay, when this object gets called, I want you to use this thing that I've created over here. So right. um, uh, yeah, it's nice. It's nice that you don't need the extension because I think that's again, with so many things, that's a real barrier to using some of these things. The idea is still with shared hosting. Although I wonder how much how much a part of PHP's future shared hosting will be, because clearly these days there's so many ways um, to run things yourself 
VPSs, Docker images, use mm-hmm. things like Heroku, Digital Ocean. Is it Digital Ocean? Yeah, yep. Digital Ocean. And I'm sure there's some other ones that are very kind of similar where small little containers, people will figure out how to use Docker to create platforms as a service for people. So it's kind of inevitable that PHP uh, devs will have to rely on shared hosting less and less, and that will give them more control over the environment that their code's going to run in. Yeah, know? no, that's very true. That's very true. And, um, yeah. And so a nice segue at Docker, I'm using Docker a lot um, at Mozilla. You know, these days it seems to be the preferred way for developers to provide a copy of the application for testers to take a look at. Um, And of course, then we go through all the growing pains of people creating super specific Docker containers and not understanding, um, you know, not understand that not everyone's setup is the same. Like uh, I'm working on queuing a tool uh, that they're creating that's going to handle doing um, the self-repair stuff in Mozilla and handling surveys and things like that. We'll pop up right in the browser and you can do a survey. They provide me a Docker image, but it's just, it had a huge number of assumptions about how things are supposed to be set up. It's expecting SSL and a, and a bunch of other things like, yeah, no, this, none of this stuff is working. So it's just kind of, it's kind of interesting to, as those teams adopted. And I, and I have found having done both the development work and the QA work, I'm finding it's actually not that hard to actually have a, a good, honest conversation with the developers to point out to them, like, you know, I tried to run this thing and I went and looked at the code and I see that you only have the server serving up HTTP, but we need it. We know we need SSL. And I noticed you're kind of doing a bunch of other things that are kind of suboptimal uh, to try to run on my own machine. And some of the devs have been surprised that a QA person actually knows about those things. Mm-hmm. But, the, but the people who... They've been super uh, open to it. I haven't. I haven't really come across anybody who's been, who's like been trying to actively thwart things when I've pointed out. You know, this could be better. This would help me do my job easier. You know, I can uh, making suggestions to people. It's, it's been very. That part's been good and kind of makes me glad I, I had all that experience because um, I may have been more reluctant to try to push back and say what you've given me is just not usable for what I'm trying to do as opposed to like. You may have just, people might have just, well, you know, I'll just, where some people's instinct may be, oh, it's okay. I'll just try to work around it. I'll, I'll go back to them and say, yeah, though, this just isn't working and you need to fix the following things. And um, right. it, it also helps that I have the ability to say things like, well, QA can't sign off on this project until this particular thing works. So there's a little bit of a, little bit of a hammer hanging over their, uh, hanging over their thumb as they're busy working on something. A lot of threats. A lot of threats there. Well, not well. There are some threats, but mostly like, yeah, <laughs> like I want to use this thing, but if you can't give me a usable thing, there's no way for me to check it, and I'm not just going to rubber stamp the deploy because everybody else is getting antsy and they want it done yesterday. It's like I need to actually see this thing work, and I need to see this thing work the way it's supposed to work. And once we can do that, um, I'm happy to really quickly go through the tests, reproduce everything, and then sign off on it. Because a couple of projects are kind of sitting around waiting to get approved because the devs haven't been able to provide me with an environment where I can check all these things. Right. So, right. Yeah, I'm so. going to, I'm going to make like write one, uh, like a bash script and make a Docker container for it and send it to you. There you go. That sounds good. So the final tool, uh, cause I think we're winding up the episode here. Wind the final tool, I find, final tool I find myself using a lot lately, um, is paw, which is an OS, uh, OS 10, um, HTTP client. I used to use, uh, I've used Charles, which is kind of a combination HTTP client and proxy, um, and I've also used uh, the imaginatively named HTTP client on my um, on my Mac, but uh, I forget who it was. Somebody that I follow on Twitter 
um, was talking about they used Paw and they shared some links to it and I watched it in action. And Paw is like a really nice, slick HTTP client that you can use for like testing APIs and, and stuff like that. And it's really good because you can create all these sequences and save them and um, call them back later. And it does all the usual nice things of like tracking your request and then feeding you back the response. And, and you can look at the raw headers and it'll translate the response into JSON that you can use and it handles the posts and some of the stuff you're talking about that, um, that HTPy helps you with from the command yeah. line. Mm-hmm. Pod does all that sort of stuff, but just from a nicer, more slicker um, graphical interface. And I found for whatever reason, I never really liked doing that sort of HT that, uh, API testing, because that's what I end up doing a lot, API endpoint testing from the command line. I always liked having a visual representation in front of me of like the URLs I was going to hit, the various values I was going to send, and then be able to see the response at the same time. And just, I don't know, just, you know, like so many other things, it was just kind of a personal, personal thing. Have you, you, I mean, I have used HTTPy. I know there's some instructions for some, forget what thing I was using. I was trying to teach myself how to use something. And it was using HTTPy as the preferred thing to hit the mm-hmm. endpoint. It might've been a node tutorial or something, but I think it was using that. Yeah. Uh, Paul looks really cool. It looks, it reminds me a lot of Charles. Yes. Um, yeah, that's, the, that's the combo proxy plus HTTP client stuff. But it looks, <laughs> but it looks a lot nicer to look at and in terms of presentation. And that does matter because how the data is shown to you makes a difference. Um, like I'm just looking at it now cause I'd never come across it. This looks really nice. I would definitely check it out. Yeah. And I, 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 I paid for a copy of it. I don't think it was very expensive, but again, my perspective on what's expensive may not be, um, someone else's uh, uh, as it's an $50 ass- it looks like. I mean, I look at it in terms of, I, I talked about this also when I did my workshop when I was in Australia at the very end, I pointed out, like, you know, said, I, you know, I would appreciate if people who, uh, I mean, I gave away copies of my books to every attendee because I mm-hmm. always do that as a nice little perk. But I talked to people during my, uh, the one hour talk. I was like, you know, if you think, you know, talking about, if you think my books and some other tools that programmers use every day are kind of expensive, it's like, I guarantee you, if you pay $29 for, you know, my PHP unit cookbook and go through it and learn how to master the basics of PHP unit, you'll make that $29 back pretty much the first time you go to use it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just totally because, right. It's like the, the reason why I always, I always try to pay for the tools that I'm using. If it's a, if it's an open source uh, tool or, or a freeware one and the creator has a PayPal account or a tip jar set up, I'll throw some money at them. I just, it's like, I want to reward people for the work that work that they've done. And I, I, I feel like, I know I, I shouldn't go and try to use free copies of everything when, when possible. I want to pay people for me. That's kind of my way of showing some appreciation saying you create a tool that I find useful. Um, and I'm happy to give you some money for it. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah. And like, I can see this like being a tool that I would use a lot. Um, I can already see that this is, it's really nicely put together. And, uh, and I, I'm not afraid to spend money. It's the same reason I don't mind spending money on, um, you know, what, $100 a year for a PyCharm thing, even though I don't write a ton of stuff in Python and don't use it a ton. But those, even if I do two or three times, like that saved me so many hours of work um, by like having a good step debugger and being able to navigate around the stuff faster that probably saved me a few hours of time. And that was well worth it. 
Yeah, I'm sure that if I was doing more Python work, if I was doing, because a lot of the apps that I work on, they're using Python. They usually have an admin system done with Django. Yep. And I and I'm I'm like you know five nines positive that if I was doing more Python development work, I would yep. definitely be using PyCharm, especially just for like all the things you talked about for the ability to do the step through debugging. It's integrated right into the IDE, the auto completion, the ability to search and find objects, and then the methods on those objects. All those things that just they save time and this idea of automate everything that you can so that your brain can concentrate on actually solving difficult problems instead of like remembering esoteric key sequences that maybe you have personal pride that you remember in Emacs, the uh, seven character chord stretch you do with your left hand to activate right. some feature, right? Yeah, right? But me, I'd be like, yeah, I don't want to have to worry about that. I want to worry about how I'm actually going to solve this problem. Yeah, so, totally. Yeah. And, so speaking yeah. of solving problems, I think we've got to the end of this episode. We're almost at 90 minutes. Yeah, we say, I, I think we have some more stuff to talk about, but we can go into that um, the next time if if our guests don't line up. We can kind of do a, a part two of the what tools and stuff we use to cover some more interesting things that I thought would be a better discussion, some new techniques that we've learned on how to do stuff at our day job. And also, I think a more interesting discussion would be stuff that you and I wanted to get into using, mm-hmm. uh, but we never got into it. And we kind of talk, I talked, I, I talked about this a little bit on, on Twitter. There's a, um, a video uh, blogger. I'm not going to say his name, who right. who lives in New York City and I've been following his stuff for a while and I was talking about how I'm kind of starting to dislike him. Yeah. Watching watching him every day and I was thinking about what is it about him that I'm disliking? It's like am I jealous about the lifestyle that he shows? He flies around a lot. It looks like he's quite successful at his job. His wife has some interesting job. I'm not sure what she does, but right. she doesn't seem to work a whole lot. Uh-huh. Um, and so I was thinking about what was making me uneasy. And it's like, is it the lifestyle? Is it the fact that people that will just send this guy super expensive gifts? Is it like, I really like your work. So here's a $700 drone. Like mm. some of that stuff is like, okay, there's clearly some money and some wealth and stuff going on about it. But what I figured out, the thing that was really bothering me is that he is showing a very narrowly edited version of his, it's a guy, of his life, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. His video log entries are only like 10 minutes long. Mm-hmm. But the thing that bugged me the most is that he only shows his successes. You never hear from him about his struggles beyond anything really banal, like, oh, I was trying to get something done today. And then spe- instead I spent six hours going through old archival footage. Like that's not really a failure, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's more like, how about, how come you never tell us about projects that you worked really hard on and nothing happens or right. projects that you worked really worked really hard on and they were a complete disaster that's what i've noticed he doesn't share his work disasters he's talked about some personal disasters mainly to do with him and his wife in their early days when they had a very tumultuous relationship they even got married once before they got the marriage annulled very quickly broke up kept getting back together multiple times splitting up and then finally got married right yeah which is which i'm looking at that thinking that is a very weird and strange relationship that they have um but yeah it was just the idea that not seeing the failures and for me i find it way more interesting to kind of see how people cope when things aren't going well because right. it's easy it's easy to be oh here's this cool thing that i did that worked right but not a lot of time being spent reflecting upon the stuff that didn't work and maybe that's just how he is he just ignores the stuff that didn't work and just keeps plowing ahead maybe that's the only way he he gets to do the things that he wants by not kind of dwelling or reflecting on the stuff that didn't go well but 
Right. Me personally, I like seeing. I like. I love people's success stories, but also I often think you find out how a person really is when they kind of open up and talk about the stuff that didn't work and the things that they did try, right. uh, and when and when stuff didn't go well, um, how they cope with that. Because I'd like to think I've shared several instances where things have just not gone well, oh, yeah. and how I and how I tried to plow through that and, and try to make something good out of was you know out of several shitty events in my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think that stuff is. I. Uh, you know, as long as it doesn't, I guess, it, I guess you could always, you know, turn it into like, I don't know, disaster porn or whatever. But I find that stuff really interesting um, just because I think it's really useful when you don't talk about that stuff. That makes it so much worse uh, because that's the th- that's the stuff you really want advice on, like not. When it goes well, you want advice about like when how do you handle the failures? Like that's the stuff that I feel like you probably need advice more than anything on. So or at least it's just as important, right? Because there's just you know, there's always gonna be stuff you don't execute right on, or for some reason it doesn't happen. And how do you deal with that? That that seems really important. Uh so yeah, I to I totally think that that's really useful and, and I, I find that stuff like I found the talk that uh, Andre Zemevsky did on um, why PHP version six didn't happen. Oh yeah, I saw that yeah. talk. Uh, where did I see it? Oh, I th- it was at the community conference. I remember. Uh, I didn't. I conference. I didn't get to see that because I was too busy working oh. with with Ben. Yeah, I know it was dumb, but I did see him give the same talk at PHP Benelux when I went. I'm pretty sure he did mm-hmm. that talk. Mm-hmm. Plus the um, uh, plus he did an interesting talk about uh, the system he put in place to cope with the unexpected side effects of having a single letter uh, Twitter oh, handle yeah. right. and being and being at a. So it was interesting where he talked about the kind of machine learning system he set up to try to filter his uh, Twitter stream so he can make sense of it. Because anytime people would do like I'm at a bar and they forget to put a space between the ampersand and the letter A, it would tag it would tag him. Right. Uh uh Um, And so just the system he set up for that was really kind of interesting. Yeah. That's uh yeah that's interesting stuff. So I, I, I like that's a really good talk, and I really like hearing about that. I like that. I don't know. I just find that I find that stuff inspiring because as people keep going even after even after this, you know what happens even when it doesn't work. Um, so so yeah, that's really interesting stuff, and I'm excited to be able to talk about some of the other stuff we talked about. Like uh, next time around, we get some time to talk about things like uh, customer support stuff and things like that we've been doing. So I'm, I'm excited to get a chance to do that next time. So, yeah, man, I'm sure we'll, I'm sure we'll have a chance to, you know, maybe we'll do that as the, as the, um, the second, the second recording that we do in May. Yeah, that'd be cool. So, uh, could talk a little bit about our sponsors again. Of course, you got got your, uh, you got your backup pro and, uh, we want to thank Eric for uh, supporting us, uh, these past five, uh, five episodes. Um, he's got this, uh, really, really cool plugin. That uh, is a complete backup solution for WordPress and Expression Engine, Craft, CMS, Concrete 5, and PrestaShop, uh, and can back it up basically anywhere, anytime, anything you need, uh, backs up everything for you, even checks like integrity of the backups to make sure, have a better idea that it's going to work, uh, this integrity agent that checks the uh, backup state, um, 
so uh and you can write your own uh like destination things because based all the whole backup engine uh for writing out backups is based on fly system which is a cool php library so uh you can write your own if you don't want to back it up to like s3 or rackspace cloud files or google cloud storage or dropbox or ftp or sftp or email you don't want to do all that stuff you want to use some other weird stuff that you came up with uh, or only write it to rise or fs or something like that uh you can write your own um, so, and the cool thing is, uh, you use a uh, promo code dev hell, D E V H E L L and you get 50% off. So it's half as much as usually is. Usually it's a hundred dollars. It's only 50 bucks because of us, because we're so cool. Uh, and that's a real slam dunk for putting in your next project. Uh, and then you got Rove, uh, Rove, uh, team, uh, driven by canine experts in PHP and web development, uh, I do full service stuff, doing consulting, training, software development, uh, whip your stuff into shape for you. Uh, and they are accepting new clients right now. They do a bunch of stuff, especially Zen framework stuff. Uh, so real good folks to uh, talk to if you need that kind of stuff. And Rove has always been extremely supportive of us. So we try to help them out too. And we appreciate you give them some support. And uh, Wonder Network, of course, uh, who are a global networking solution provider um their map kind of looks like a a risk board game um and i they seem to be amassing a lot of armies in north america and in western europe although they do also have things in kazakhstan um pakistan uh, united arab emirates and a variety of other countries uh, they are not, doesn't look like, Indo no, wait, they are in Indonesia. Thank God. I was worried. Okay. So even Indonesia, South Korea, strangely not North Korea. They do not have a data center in North Korea yet, uh, but I'm sure that's coming soon. Wonder Network have been long supporters of us, provide the uh, live bandwidth to us, and uh, they're awesome and support us. So if you would support them, that'd be really cool. So let them know you heard about us, have heard about them from us. So anyway, that's what we got for this week. So sponsor wise. Yes. Uh, once again, thank you to Rove and Wonder Networks for their uh, long, 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 long time support of the podcast. Uh, mm -hmm. having, having them on board doesn't mean a lot because we actually do have personal relationships with the uh, people behind both organizations. So this has been episode number 76 of the Development Hell podcast, where we talked about various tools and programming languages that we used. Um, Ed, thanks for coming on. I know we both sacrificed a lot. We didn't get to watch the Game of Thrones season premiere. Um, I'll be watching that. Yeah. I will be. I will be watching that tomorrow because it'll be available on demand where I am. No spoilers. Uh, no, yeah, I haven't seen any spoilers so far. I've been yeah. able to avoid that. Uh, so you can find every single episode we've ever done on our website at devhell.info. There are snappy titles, awesome graphics, show notes, and a link to actually listen to each episode. Uh, if you do listen to us via iTunes, please rate the podcast. Let us know what you like. Let us know what you don't like. Despite my jokes, um, we do actually pay attention. We do want to do a good job and keep providing uh, content that people want to see. You can find us also find us on Twitter at dev underscore hell. You can find me on Twitter. I'm Grumpy Programmer without the U. You can find Ed S. Funkatron with the U. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll talk to you all soon. Good night, Internet. Good night.